So how should we respond to those who war against us? How do we respond to those who persecute us and seek to destroy us? How should we respond to those who express disgust and malice toward us? How should we respond to those who insult us and slander us and malign us and revile us and spurn us? How should we respond to those who hurt us by using us for their own end and for their own benefit and for their own pleasure? How should we respond to people who demand things from us that they don't have and and that they believe they should have and that they have not earned or that they believe is being withheld and it is somehow rightfully theirs? How do we respond to people who abuse their power and authority and who intimidate us by forcibly taking things from us? How do we respond to all of those? The world tells us we're to respond in like kind, right? The world tells us to retaliate. It tells us to seek retribution. The world tells us that revenge is ours. The world tells us to demand for reparations and protest and occupy. The world tells us to exercise violence. The mantra for the world is, as others do to you, do to them. Treat others the way you have been treated. Or do unto others as they have done unto you. However, for the kingdom citizen, it's vastly different. It's quite the contrary. For the kingdom citizen, the answer is we are to respond in love. You see, we're not called to do just the easy thing and love one another. We're not just called to do uh, the uncomfortable thing and love our neighbor or to love the unlovely or love the unlovable. We're called to do the difficult thing. We're called to do the the difficult thing, the most difficult thing, and that is love our enemies. Love is the kingdom way, it's the difficult way, and it's the modeled way. That's our outline in the back of your bulletin in the normal place tonight. The kingdom way, the difficult way, the modeled way, that is our outline from this passage in Luke 6 that John read earlier, and as is our custom, let's go to the Lord uh, in prayer before we do, all right? Uh, Father, by your Spirit, would you please grant power to the preaching of your Word? Awaken our attention and refresh us, encourage us, challenge us, convict us, and comfort us as we see Jesus and hear His gospel tonight. I am weak. 
I'm very needy and unfit for this task, so I would ask for your support and your strength and the filling of your spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace. Allow me, enable me to communicate with clarity and fluency and fervency and grace for the sake of Christ and His church. Amen and amen. All right, so to get a clear picture of what Jesus is saying in verses 27 to 36, we need to remember what He has already said. So we need to go back and just for a moment recall what we learned last week at the beginning of the sermon that began in uh, verse 20. And if you'll remember, there were three things that Jesus did there. He declared or made a declaration, uh, He gave a description, and then He also uh, shared an exhortation. So let's just remember those quickly. The declaration He made was that His disciples were kingdom citizens whose citizenship wasn't dependent upon anything in and of themselves. Right? They were kingdom citizens, but it wasn't a matter of their, um, the absence of or the presence of mater- material possessions or wealth. It wasn't dependent upon their lack or abundance of needs. It wasn't dependent upon their positive or negative outlook on life. It wasn't dependent upon their positive or negative relationships or their positive and negative reputations. It was solely dependent upon their faith in Him and in Him alone. And so he looks in their eyes and he says very clearly is, is you are blessed. You're blessed because you understand your spiritual poverty. You understand that you're bankrupt spiritually speaking. You understand that you have a spiritual need, but you and you alone are unable to meet that spiritual need on your own. You understand that your salvation and your redemption and your sanctification and your restoration, all that you need, all that you desire, come from someone outside of you. In fact, you know that it comes from me. You are hungering and thirsting for my righteousness and my righteousness alone. It's not a righteousness that you possess, again, in and of yourself. You're mourning your sin. You're longing to be made whole. You're looking to me. Your hope is not in your wealth and your prosperity and your prestige. Your hope is outside of yourself. It's in me. Therefore, the kingdom is yours. You are citizens today. But he says, this isn't just the beginning. Remember, he said, this isn't just the beginning. This is just a foretaste. The kingdom has not come in its fullest sense, but it is coming. It will be consummated. And you, having already possessed the kingdom, it will be yours then in its fullest sense. The kingdom will be consummated, but it is just as much yours today as it will be then. So that's the declaration. He also had a description to give, and it was a description of a deep, abiding joy that was theirs, that was theirs and could be theirs and could be experienced and would be experienced regardless, again, of their temporal possessions, regardless of what, what they had or did not have. Their deep abiding joy was theirs, whether their times were happy or sad and adversity and prosperity, and if I've married you, you recognize those words. They could and would experience a deep abiding joy because they were Christ's and all that was His was theirs. 
They could experience a deep abiding joy because he was the bread of life. And they understood that they were not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the word of God. They understood that they could experience and would experience a deep abiding joy because he would comfort them. He would sustain them in the midst of their circumstances, in the ups and downs of life. Regardless of what they were experiencing, it was possible and that one day he would wipe away every tear from their eye. They could and would experience deep abiding joy because they knew that when others hated them, when others rejected them, and slandered them, he was their friend. Because he, was, he is the friend of sinners. What they didn't know at this particular time was that that love that he had for them would lead him to be hated. It would lead him to be excluded and reviled and spurned and scourged to the point of death on the cross on their behalf. And the bottom line was as kingdom citizens, they could and would experience deep abiding joy because he was their greatest treasure. They valued, what they valued most was Jesus. But he exhorts them, right? He not only makes that declaration and, and provides that description, but he had an exhortation for them. He said, be ready. Be ready because of, on account of the Son of Man. Because you are um, following me and you're devoted to me and you treasure me and trust me, right? you're going to be poor. You're going to be hungry. You're going to suffer. You're going to be ostracized. You're going to be hated. You're, you're going to have your reputations ruined because you identify with me. Be ready. But then he also said, in the midst of that, be ready because it's coming, but in the midst of that, you are going to be able to jump up and down for tri in triumphant joy because I'm going to be right there. Your reward is, is me, and, and the kingdom will be consummated. And, and so the bottom line, as we said from beginning to end last week, was you know, their best life was not in the present. Their best life was not now. Their best life was to come. And they weren't resting in what was temporary. They were resting in what was eternal. So out of that, right, he comes right out of that and leads us right into verse 27. And he says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And right away, we see that he isn't speaking on an institutional or governmental level. He is speaking individually. He's speaking to individuals before him. This is a specific and deeply personal sermon to those who are standing there. It is deeply personal, and he addresses their actions, he addresses their words, and he addresses their hearts. Nothing is left out. He says, because you are who you are, because of who you value most, and in light of what lies ahead, there is a way that I desire for you to live. 
As a matter of fact, this, there's a way I command you to live. This is an imperative, and it is imperative that you do these things moving forward. You're kingdom citizens who treasure me, and you, you value me, you're following me, you're listening to me, you're hearing me, you're learning from me, and to be distinct and set apart from the world around you as you are to be, there's a certain way of life. In other words, there's, a, there's a, the world's way, and then there's a kingdom way. And he says that kingdom way is love. And this love isn't warm sentiment that we have for all human beings. It's not a romantic or erotic attraction between a man and a woman. It's also not even that mutual brotherly love between friends. It's an unconditional love for enemies that's concentrated on what is in their best interest. It's not based upon our own self-interest. It's not, um, well, in Paul's words, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, right, it does not insist on its own way, and, and it does not expect anything in return. And fortunately, he doesn't leave them or us there wondering, what is that going to look like? What are we to do? He, he says it's a love that's exhibited through what you do. So when, you, when your enemies hate you, you don't hate in return. You absorb their hate. And then your response is to do good to them. He says it's a love that's exhibited in what you say. So when your enemies curse you, you don't curse them back. You don't curse in return. You absorb their curses, and then you respond by calling on the Lord to show favor on them. He says it's also exhibited by what you ultimately desire for them. So when your enemies mistreat you spitefully and maliciously, you don't respond with mistreatment for mistreatment. You absorb their mistreatment. And then you respond by praying for them and seeking their welfare. And then in verses 29 and 30, he gives three very concrete examples. He says, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So he says, when people insult you, when people demand things from you that they don't have, have not earned, or have been withheld, and they believe they deserve them in some way, or when they abuse their power and authority and imitate you or intimidate you forcibly and take what's yours, don't respond in a defensive way. Don't respond defensively. 
absorb the wrong. Don't hold it against them. In other words, forgive them. But also, continue, continue to respond in a way that leaves you vulnerable to it happening again. His, his disciples are always to be ready to do good to others, to bless others, to pray for others, to offer and not withhold from others, and give to and not demand things back from others. And they are to do so over and over and over again. And then in verse 31, he kind of summarizes all of that. And he says, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. He doesn't say treat others as they treat you. He didn't say treat others in a way in order that they reciprocate and treat you in the same way. He doesn't say treat others the way you wish they would treat you, whether they do so or not. And actually, he doesn't, we could, go, we could really take that a step farther. And we could say he, he, what he doesn't say is treat them, or, or what he does say is treat them the way you wish they would treat you, even if they are treating you in a way that is exactly opposite from the way you want to be treated. Well, obviously, the questions that come, the questions that come to our minds are, you know, how, how does this apply to us, and, and, and where's the line, right? Especially in light of the fact that we see uh, throughout the Bible that people do flee persecution, they do protect themselves through legal means, uh, they defend their lives, particularly in the book of Acts uh, that Luke also wrote, so we see that going on, and so we, we ask, surely there's a line somewhere and they're very natural questions. One commentator I read this week put it this way. He said, Jesus' appeal for an attitude of aggressive openness to one's enemy, despite the cost, is clear enough. We can't mistake it. But then he said, however, defining the boundaries of applicability and the relationship of this concern to other perhaps equally valid concerns is not. We've got to wade through that a little bit. And so we read this call to what is extreme love. And in light of other scriptural examples, we're left wondering. Those questions are in our head. Is this, is this applicable to us outside of religious persecution? Or we ask, does it apply to criminal action? Or we ask, does it apply to being in danger physically, emotionally, or sexually in terms of harm or abuse at the hand of others? Does it apply when we talk about losing our lives? And, and how do we apply it when in the social context that we exist in right now isn't necessarily and really isn't at all at the level of persecution that it was at the time this was written, spoken and written? And I just have to tell you, I can't answer all those questions in the short time that we have tonight. But I can address 
two things in particular I think that will be helpful for us. And I want to address first the issue of harm and abuse. The passage itself has been wrongly used to justify the counsel given by some to remain in harmful and abusive relationships, whether those relationships or the harm is physical, sexual, or emotional. And I say wrongly used because in the original context, striking on the cheek was considered an insult. We're talking about kind of the backhand, you know, take your, they didn't have gloves, but you take off your gloves and, you, you know, I've moved up a couple hundred years there, but, um, right, it, it's an insult. It wasn't considered violence. So enduring physical harm is not included here in what Jesus is saying in this particular passage. Listen to these words from Philip Ryken. He says, it seems significant that we're called to pray for our abusers rather than to do good to them. Some forms of abuse, especially physical violence, are too dangerous to endure. In such cases, we have a God-given responsibility to protect and preserve life, including our own. We need to be wise and respond and pray for them at a safe distance. Because there is no form of hostility that excuses us from Christ's command to love our enemies. We also have a God-given responsibility to make sure that violence and abuse is dealt with by the proper authorities in the home, school, and work, or in church. By caring enough to confront, we may help an abuser to recognize his sin and repent. And then another pastor and commentator said, reporting crime is both a civic responsibility and an act of compassion. To excuse or help cover up the wrongdoing of others is an act of wicked complicity with evil. To fail to protect the innocent is itself a serious evil. And so, no, the answer is no, this, this call to extreme love does not apply regarding to our subjecting ourselves to repeated harm or abuse, nor does it relieve our responsibility to report those kinds of things. But we must remember, it does apply in regard to praying for the abusers themselves. Secondly, I want to address being taken advantage of monetarily and materially. Again, Pastor Riken says, some Christians are so concerned about somebody taking advantage of them that they never give anything to anyone. But Jesus calls us to err on the side of generosity. Of course, there are limits to what we can give, and there are times when it is not loving to give, because giving will foster an unhealthy dependency. But love is what must decide, not love for ourselves and our possessions, but love for others and what they truly need, even when it even with it come, uh, when it comes to our enemies, we should not look to hold on to what we have, but give it away as a demonstration of Christian love. And Leon Morris adds this, if Christians look or took this command absolutely literally, there would soon be a class of saintly paupers owning nothing and another of prosperous, and another of prosperous idlers and thieves. It is not this that Jesus is seeking, but a readiness among his followers to give and give and give. The Christian should never refrain from giving out of a love of his own possessions. So yes, 
this call to extreme love does apply in the cases of being taken advantage of monetarily or materially, but wisdom and discretion must be exercised for our sake and the ones to whom we are giving. And finally, children, I said two things, but children, I want to specifically get you thinking here, okay? I want you to think about these questions. First, who is it easier to love? Is it easier to love, um, or who is it easier to love? Who is it easier to play with? Who is it easier to share with? Who is it easier to talk to? Someone who likes you or someone who doesn't like you? And do you normally treat others like you want to be treated? Or do you treat them the way they actually treat you? Now those are questions that I wanted you to begin thinking about because they are a part of your family worship this week. And I hope you will um, talk with your parents through those questions, all right? I think it would be very, very helpful for you all to do that, okay? But the bottom line is this. And I don't use this term a lot, I, really, I, I, I try to stay away from it because of how it's been used in the past, but this is a radical love. This is a radical love that Jesus is calling his disciples to. Um, it's radical uh, because it's more than uncomfortable. And this love, it's a love that challenges us and pushes us to our very limits, and Jesus knew it. Look what he says in verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who, whom you expect to receive or get a loan back from, you know, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. And so Jesus is acknowledging that this kingdom way of love is a difficult way. It's a very difficult way. He says to love those who love you and to do good to those who do good to you and to lend to those who lend to you really doesn't take a whole lot of effort. It's easy. Even, even sinners love other sinners that way. They, they love each other, and they do good to each other, and they lend to one another. And I think we could really go so far to say this, this really isn't love at all, because love, this, this kind of thing expects something in return. I'm going to do good because I want somebody to do good back to me. I'm going to lend somebody money because when I need it, I want them to lend it to me. And even... Though he doesn't say it, the idea is if others stop reciprocating, that they too would stop loving and doing good. So there isn't really anything distinctive about that kind of love. Right? Remember last week we said we are to be distinct. So how could we be distinct if everybody's doing that sort of thing? And he said, it's, it's this way, it's the kingdom way, because it's really, really hard to love those who don't reciprocate. 
it's hard to love those who not only don't reciprocate, but hate. It's, it's hard to love those who don't just uh, not give, they take. It's really hard to love those right, who don't just lend, who, who don't just not lend, but they extort. He says, for every positive action that his disciples take toward their enemies, there is this negative reaction from them. And as believers, for every negative action that he says that they and, and that we are that we receive, the kingdom citizen responds in love. And to do so is diametrically opposed to the world. The world is not going to do that. But notice I said a difficult way and not an impossible way. It's difficult. It's the most difficult, but it is not impossible. And it's not impossible because it was a modeled way. Look at verse 35. But love your enemies... And do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So Jesus says, when you love the kingdom way, which is a difficult way, it will be rewarded. It's going to be rewarded. And how is it rewarded? It's rewarded by the Father being pleased. The Father is pleased when, when we love in that way because they are loving in this difficult kingdom way. And what are they doing? They're giving evidence of the fact that they are, in fact, kingdom citizens. They are sons of the Most High. Right? They're doing what the Father, their Father, is doing and has done. They're members of the household of God and they're imitating their father. And in loving in this difficult kingdom way, as they imitate him, right, because he is merciful and kind even to the ungrateful and the evil. And like any father, he rewards those children who desire to earnestly seek him and imitate him, and he does so with his presence and with his pleasure. So in the end, what Jesus is doing is simply commanding his disciples to do what their father has done and what he, right, his father has already exhibited it and continues to exhibit it. And he's, he is commanding the, his disciples to do what he is, has done and will continue to do himself as the son of the most high. And he's going to fully and completely exhibit this kind of love very soon during the week of his passion. It's coming. They're going to see it in its fullest and perfect sense. Because you see, it is, it is the cross. It's at the cross where we not only see this difficult kingdom love exhibited and modeled in its perfect sense, 
But it's also at the cross where we, as his disciples, receive the power that we need to imitate it. It's only at the cross. It's what makes the gospel God's gospel. He calls us to fulfill the law and love. And that call, what has it done? Many of us are feeling that tonight, right? We're called to love and it reveals a lack of love in ourselves, in our hearts. We find ourselves laid bare, exposed before Him because we're unable to meet that standard. So the law has done its work. It's done its job. But at the cross, we see that while we were still ungrateful and evil, that Christ died for us. Christ perfectly and fully loved his enemies, of which we were numbered. While we were yet sinners, right? While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And being on the receiving end, having, having been on the receiving end and being on the receiving end of that love and, and having that, that love, Paul says, that love being poured into our hearts by the Spirit, we are now able to love others the way we've been loved. But when we attempt, brothers and sisters, we have to remember, when we attempt to love others apart from Christ and apart from His work on our behalf, apart from His cross, we constantly work out of an emotional deficit and will eventually give up and, exact, and, and do the exact opposite. Which is why Paul prayed for the Ephesians and why I pray for us tonight that the Father would grant all of us to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. It is then that we're able to love as we've been called to love. By His grace, by His Spirit, we work out of not simply, uh, not simply um, a sufficient supply, we work out of abundance. We've been given beyond what we can ask or imagine. And we're able to live distinctly in the world, different from the world, and love our enemies. And I, and I pray for all of us, all of us in these days ahead, as opposition grows, and it is growing and will continue to grow, may we refrain from the world's call 
of seeking retribution and retaliation and revenge and demands for reparations and protests and occupation and violence. May we rest in His provision to love. In those moments, He providentially provides that He might be glorified and that Christ would be exalted and that His church would be strengthened. May that be so for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.